0: Hi, everybody. This is Pastor Tim from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire. This is our weekly podcast of the sermon from the prior Sunday. Normally, at this time, I have invited everybody to join us for worship at eight thirty and eleven uh, but right now we 're in the midst of the global pandemic, and so we are not having worship in our building at eight thirty and eleven Instead, you can find us online doing virtual worship using Zoom. You can find the information for all of that on our website at www.htelc.com. You can also like us on Facebook. And uh, those are the two primary ways in which to find our links to have worship with us. So it doesn't matter where you are, as long as you have an internet connection, you can join us for worship so thank you for listening we hope that you find the sermon meaningful and purposeful that it connects to your life and how you interact with the world and most of all it reveals god's infinite love for you and all of creation the gospel this morning comes from john it is traditional gospel reading uh, that we have on reformation sunday thank you franklin from john chapter 8 verses 31 to 36 Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham, and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying, You will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The sun has a place there forever. If the sun makes you free, you will be free indeed. The gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. We continue with the sermon. Uh, We continue with the sermon. I'm just going to tell you it is a little longer uh, than normal as there's just a whole lot to cover with the being Reformation Sunday. So... Here we go. Hey, good morning, everybody. Holy Trinity and whoever else might be watching. It is me, Pastor Tim. Uh, Some of you might be excited right now because you notice we got the whiteboard back. Some of you might be a little disappointed because I'm not in the sanctuary. Hopefully it's a mix of the two because I'm wearing my collar. Uh, So, but here we go. The reason why I have the whiteboard is there are some terms and some names I want to use that uh, I want them to sink in a little bit more. And uh, as we learn, the more times we see or engage with a term or words, or the different ways we do that, the easier it is for it to sink in. So not just if I say it, but if you can see it as well. It is Reformation Sunday. So the scripture we just heard coming from John 8 is what is heard, at least in ELCA churches, every year on Reformation Sunday is always... Uh, John, if the Son of uh, God, if Jesus sets you free, you are free indeed. And what a lot of sermons will do, and I, I've i done this before, right? You almost retell the Reformation story, uh, a story from our past, a story that shapes us and continues, will shape us into the future. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we need to know our old stories, and we'll hear a bit of that Uh, Reformation story of Martin Luther in a little bit. But I want to look at it maybe a different way. And if you remember uh, a couple months ago, I had that pyramid up here. We had Science Time with Pastor Tim. I want to start off with Science Time, Pastor Tim. That pyramid before, we looked at the animal kingdom and we had uh, producers and consumers, right? And we talked about humans in the natural world. We are consumers. We we eat, we uh, take in things, but we essentially use everything below us for our own benefit. Because um, the producers are down here. And we said in the life of Christ and in life in Christ, that pyramid gets turned upside down and we actually become producers on the bottom to serve the rest of creation. We are producers of love, producers of hope, producers of faith. And I want to revisit another science lesson. Um, I studied biology in college, at Luther College, uh, but it was in the life and natural sciences. I had to take a class called entomology. Entomology, the study of insects. And uh, one of the things that we learned there, although you learned this and other times also, is the concept of molting. What molting is, uh, not just insects go through it, but some crustaceans go through it also. Molting is when you have to shed your outer skin because you're growing. What, uh, that exoskeleton no longer can contain the new body that is being formed inside. So, whether it's an animal, an insect that flies around, or an animal that might be underwater, if they're underwater, they take in water uh, as much as they can, and if they're in the air, they take in oxygen, uh, and they almost burst through it, or they shed it. Uh, I was looking up some Google videos, you can see this big, large crab just kind of bursting out, coming out from uh, the shell. It is an integral part of the life of the animal. It has to molt. It has to shed that outer skin or outer layer, because if it doesn't, it will die. It has to shed that outer layer. If it doesn't, it will die. Now, here's the interesting thing about molting. It is the most dangerous time of that insect's life or of that animal's life. Scientists say about 85% of insect deaths occur during that molting phase. And why is that, right? Because when an animal goes through its molting, and insects will do it up until they become an adult, but then there's other animals like lobsters. In the first year of life, they'll molt five or six times, and then after that, they'll molt maybe once or twice a year because their growth just isn't as fast. But if this is why they are so vulnerable during that time of molting, because that outer protection that has come to cover them, come um, provide their defenses, provide them safety is no longer there. They are exposed, right? Their body that emerges from that old exoskeleton is still soft. It hasn't hardened. Uh, Their mobility is greatly um, limited, right? Because that exoskeleton isn't hard, they can't really move around well. You think about a butterfly when it appears from its chrysalis, that's a kind of molting, right? It goes into that cocoon and it eventually bursts out of it. But if you've ever seen a, a butterfly come out of that cocoon, it's such a delicate, fragile thing. Its wings are still wet. Maybe part of it doesn't quite emerge from the pupa, right? Um, but it's very dangerous time, because what once, what once protected it? What it once was so vital to its life, it's shedding, and it hasn't formed those new things yet which are going to do for that animal what its old exoskeleton did. It's in this in-between time, but it is essential for it to occur. The animal has to molt or it will die because its exoskeleton, its shell, whatever you want to call it, can no longer hold what it is growing. And it then prevents growth. This is why I bring up multi-now. Churches, individual, and a large church, right? Capital C churches, do the same thing. Or they should do the same thing. That is what the Reformation is about. I've been reading this book, and I forgot to bring it out with me. I've read it before. I've been referring back into it as I'm getting ready for this sermon. And it's by Phyllis Tickle. It's called The Great Emergence. I highly recommend it. Uh, It's not a long book, a hundred or so pages, Great Emergence, Phyllis Tickle. And what she talks about is every 500 years, churches go through a rummage sale. Essentially, they shed what is no longer serving them. And it allows them to form a new identity. And it, like I said, this is 500 years. So she works from today and works its her way backwards to show where this has occurred. So if we go through 500 years backward from now, we probably know what that is, especially being Lutherans. And it's only three years after the official celebration of it, right? But we have the Great Reformation. And we'll use the year 1517. We know Martin Luther uh, is who's credited with it, but there's so many other people that go along with it. But there were indulgences being sold uh, by Rome that uh, were paying for an extravagant lifestyle of the Pope and all the higher-ups going on, the building. And so they would send out people. uh, John Tetzel is the one who is generally referred to that Luther interacted with. And indulgences were sold to raise money. And what an indulgence did is if you had a loved one who had died, they weren't in heaven. They weren't in hell. They were in purgatory, right? And you could buy an indulgence that would limit their time in purgatory in which they had to purge their sins that had occurred while they were on earth. And so uh, it was. no one really knew how long that time was. But if you had a loved one who had died, give some money. Here's a, sh- a slip of paper. And your loved one's time in purgatory is lessened, and they will be released to heaven soon. And that's, uh, in a nutshell, although there are many other things, right? We have the whole uh, famous story of Luther nailing his 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door, although that's really a story. Uh, No one really knows if that actually happened. Melanchthon, one of Luther's uh, colleagues, is the only one who has that recorded it actually happening. But it was a reformation of theology, of what uh, is no longer serving and needs to be shed because it is prohibiting growth. The Great Reformation, 1517. We can go back 500 years from that, and we have what's called the Great Schism. And the year that is signed to that is 1054. What this was about, right, 500 years, what this is about, it is the separation of the Eastern and Western churches. We're not going to get into it real much, uh, real a lot, but it has to do with what's called the Filioque. And the Filioque is, where does the Holy Spirit come from? Where does the Holy Spirit come from? Does it come from the Father and the Son, or does it just come from the Father? But essentially you had uh, the head of the church in Rome, the Pope, and the head of the church in Constantinople. Essentially a big disagreement over this, and they excommunicate each other. And what was kind of a tense but still a working relationship now is severed. We get the Great Schism, and now you have the Eastern Church. Uh, like the Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox Church, and you have, let me get an N, and you have the Western Church, uh, the Pope, which then we eventually are descendants of. But that's the great schism of 1054. You now go back 500 years from that, and there isn't really a year that is signed to it that I know of, but we're going to talk about somebody called Gregory the Great. right? And we'll say 6th century, which is the 500s, And what happened in the 6th century is Rome fell. In the 300s, Christianity became the official religion of Rome, but now Rome falls, the barbarians come in, break down its walls, conquer the city. But what happens during that time, as they conquer the city, and Christianity is the official religion of Rome, uh, many of those people came in and conquered it, also adopted it. But they didn't adopt it in the form that it was, they tweaked it, they changed it. In Phyllis Tickle's book, she called it they bastardized it. And so, what Gregory the Great did during this time was one of the primary people responsible for helping to preserve Christianity, the first five centuries of Christianity, when um a lot of it was simply being destroyed. And so it's at this time that you get uh, Christianity from those first five centuries goes into uh, uh, the desert fathers, desert mothers, I I think you can say. Uh, But as uh, the dark ages uh, begin, Christianity now takes refuge or shelter in monasteries, uh, monks and nuns, and they preserve it because what's happening out in the general public, you might say, is some different form than what was being taught over those first 500 years. These people had come in, conquered Rome and changed it. So it wasn't, uh, took away some of its essence, its core. So it wasn't always recognizable to what they believed Christianity was. Gregory the great helped to ensure that it kept going, that it persevered, along with monks and nuns in monasteries at that time, and that was sixth century. You could even go farther back. You know, so Phyllis Tickle she doesn't get into this at nearly as much. But what's five hundred years before that? Christ comes, right? So now we're into that ancient Jewish church. And Christ comes at about that, you know, year 32, or whatever, 500 years before, and it goes through another hole of people. You go back 500 years before that, and we get uh, the Babylonian exile, or not the Babylonian exile, but we get, uh, uh, yeah, the Babylonian exile, right? People being, um, the land being taken over, Babylonians coming in. Before that, you get uh, King David and people asking for a king. So every 500 years, Phyllis Tickle is saying the church is going through what she calls a rummage sale, dispersing of what it does not need, or what has been harming it, in a way you might say, or a great change of upheaval, maybe. The reason why I bring all this up, because If we have the Great Reformation, if we have the Great Schism, if we have Gregory the Great, not a sense of irony uh, is lost on us that he had the name Gregory the Great. That wasn't something that Phyllis Tickle just put in. He was known as Gregory the Great. But we are now in a time of the Great Emergence. Do you feel that we are in a time of upheaval? Do you feel that we are in a time of... uh, Feeling dizzy, not sure which way is up. And do you sense there's some hope that something new can come from this? Do you notice there is a change occurring in the world, in the church, all around us? Phyllis Tickle says that is what is going on today we have what's going on a great emergence. There is another rummage sale happening in society all around us and within the church. We are in the midst of it. Now here's the thing, times of upheaval are hard. They can be dangerous. Think back to that animal that's molting, that crab or that lobster or that butterfly that for so long had a world that it knew how to function in, had that protective outer covering. But as it's growing, that outer covering that at once was deemed so necessary for life, no longer is able to do the job and it needs to shed it. It needs to, to move on from it. That's not saying it was bad, but it's saying it can't serve the purpose it once did that something new has to take form. And in order for something new to take form, something has to um, be shed. Something has to get rid of. Now we talked about that time is so dangerous because during that time in which that new shell hasn't formed yet, it's vulnerable. It's susceptible to predators. It's so tender. And so you could see why if the animal had a choice, knowing during this time, 85%, we said, of insects may not survive that time of molting. If it had a choice, would it? But yet, if it doesn't, death is certain. So it doesn't have a choice. It has to move forward. It has to to shed it. It's a living, breathing, dynamic organism. It is not static. The church does the same thing. And we are in the midst of it now. So if you are feeling uh, anxious about what's going on, if you are feeling nervous about what's going on, if you are afraid about what's going on, I get it, that is understandable. If you want to go back to the way things were in the church that you knew when you grow up, I understand it, because that is a time in which things made sense. And yet, what's happening in the world today is many of those ways are not working anymore. And the church is wanting to grow, needing to grow, needing to move forward. And in order to do that, we have to shed some of those things that once protected us and worked and perhaps no longer do. More and more people are identifying themselves right as nuns and nuns. Nuns meaning uh, right when you check off on the census or you have to check off religious affiliation, you, Christian, uh, Muslim, Judaism, or whatever it might be, and then you have an option for none, n o n e. That is the fastest growing demographic right now: people that are religiously none, and where many of those people are coming from, right? They come from a category being titled done D O N E. They once had affiliated Christianity on that demographic checklist, but they're done with the church because it hasn't helped them grow anymore. It has become too confining in the way it is practiced in the questions that are asked. Now, this doesn't mean that as a church, anything and everything goes. That's not what I'm saying, right? That God is just this um, amorphous blob that, uh, you know, that anything goes for God, right? No, we believe Jesus is the most full revelation of God that we have, and not just Christ, but specifically Christ on the cross. But within that, how do we let that be what grows us? What's going on in the world or in the church today is that we have begun, I believe, too often to worship what is a point, what is supposed to point us to Christ, rather than what what is worshiping Christ to begin with we begin to uh, idolize the structure rather than the God. I love what Luther says about the Bible. The Bible is the manger that holds the Christ child, right? We don't worship the Bible. We worship what the Bible points to. But yet, in so many areas, the Bible has begun, has become what we worship this inherent, infallible, literal word of God that's in the Bible, and it is exactly what God has said. And so, see, the Bible says it, I believe it, that ends it. As opposed to the Bible is what holds the Christ child, it's what points us to Christ. The church, capital C, should have the same function. It what points us to Christ. Whatever will help us point to Christ, that is what we do. If it doesn't help point us to Christ, then the the theological, the church word for it is adiaphora. It's extra. It's not necessary. We are in a time, the great emergence, when we should be asking ourselves who are we, what are we called to do, and are we doing it? Everything else is adiaphora and to ask those questions to go back to the molting. It's scary because it can leave us vulnerable. It can leave us tender. It can leave us raw. It can be scary and we don't know what the outcome is. And so we'd rather stay where we are. But here's where the hope comes from. In Christ, we know there is a future there. I don't know specifically what it looks like. I don't know what the church is going to look like 50 years from now. But I know it can't look like what it is today. And so we come together to hear the words of Christ, that God loves us unconditionally, and we let that what guides us, and we let that be what forms what is coming. This pandemic, holy smokes, everything seems turned upside down right now. Whatever rhythm you had, whatever structure you had, whatever constants you had, seems like they are gone, and so we feel so uneasy. Because everything is changing around us. I get it. Church, faith, God gives us something to cling to. God's love that while the future might be unknown, God is with us. God is before us. God is behind us. And so we step into the future. We move out of that shell. We we shed what is preventing our growth, no matter what it might be, to move into the future with God, knowing it is scary, It is hard. The guarantee of what we once knew, right? What we once knew is not guaranteed. What is guaranteed, God is with us. And so we can see what is coming. We aren't what we were. We aren't what we're going to be. We're in this journey between. And I'm glad we're in it together with God leading the way. Amen.